You're listening to the River City Church Podcast. Our desire is that you know Jesus, experience freedom, find community, and discover purpose. For more information, check us out on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co. Here's the message. Today, if you have your Bibles, we're uh, going to be in Acts chapter 9 in just a moment. Acts chapter 9. Let me give you, before we, while you're turning there, the the theme verse we've had for this series. We're actually finishing this series today called What's Next? And we began this series talking about the Holy Spirit, talking about the Word of God last week. And today we're going to talk about uh, the importance of living on purpose. So if you have, if you're taking notes, the title's On Purpose. And uh, we started with the Holy Spirit, because the conversations the disciples have with Jesus following the resurrection, post what we celebrate on Easter, is that they're asking this question, what's next? What do we do next? What are we supposed to do? What are you going to do next, Jesus? Uh, and that's often on the minds of many people as we're wondering, what's God going to do next? What's he going to do next in my life? What's he going to do next in our, our, our cities, our nation? What's God going to do next? And, and I believe in starting personally, and and we looked at the importance of the work of the Holy Spirit that, in fact, Jesus told them the very next thing that was going to happen was they were going to be empowered through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would be poured out upon the church, and the church would begin with a, a really just something coming alive in the church through the power of and work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, last week we talked about the importance of being founded on, grounded on, the foundation of the Word of God. Without God's Word as our foundation, we're building on sand. Without God's word in, as our foundation in our lives, our families, our marriages, our, our church even, uh, there's, there's a, a, I think the greatest, most disturbing trend in the church world today is a departure from the foundations that are the only thing that can keep us strong. Do you know the Bible actually describes the church as the pillar and ground of the truth? We can't be that for the world around us without the foundation of God's word. Well, it's also true for us personally. So, so I, I like to picture it like this. Just like you've got two legs that you walk on, you've got, uh, we need, one leg is, uh, is the work of the Holy Spirit. We also need God's word. And with those two things that work in our lives, those two uh, things, graces that God's given us, the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of his word enables us to walk in our purpose. So whenever uh, one of those is missing or maybe not in, in the proper place and, and action in our lives, we're unable to do what God has fully called us to do. Romans 8, 14 in the Message Bible says, God's spirit beckons. It's been our theme verse through this series. There's things to do, places to go. This is Message Bible. Uh, this resurrection life you've received from God is not a timid or grave-tending life, but it is adventurously expectant. Greeting God with a childlike, what's next? I just believe that's how Christians should be. Like so many times we are the, 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 the most frustrated, the most disappointed, the most hopeless. That's not the way it should be. We should be the most hope-filled, the most joy-filled, the most life-giving people on planet earth. Thank you, four of you. Okay. I'm just trying to figure out what my sermon should be for the rest of this time together. What's next? We should have that kind of expectation. God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is and we know who we are, father and children. Now, let's go to Acts 9 as we look at this story today to unpack this, living on purpose. And one of my favorite stories in the Bible of of somebody whose life was changed is the story of Saul of Tarsus. Saul is better known for most of us as Paul. And it says in verse 1, and this is from the New Living Translation, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. 
So he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. By the way, the Bible said that long before the Mandalorian. He found, okay, just trying to warm my, okay. Um, <laughs> he wanted to bring them, there. for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, that's okay, you're better off not knowing. Uh, he, he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So here's, here's what's the background. Saul is the most zealous, passionate persecutor of the church. He has made it his mission to destroy the church. He has made it his mission to stop what God's done in the church, not because he... he, he well, let's just say this. He doesn't recognize that God's involved in this. One of the other Pharisees around that time said, well, if, if man's in this, it'll, it'll come to nothing. But if God's in this, you're just fighting against God. There's nothing you can do to stop it. Well, Saul didn't know that yet. Saul didn't recognize that yet because Saul's at a point right now where he is passionately in pursuit of a calling or a, a, an activity to stop the church. But he doesn't know that while he's running 100 miles an hour towards a moment of what he considers to be his mission to stop the church, he's going to actually find his real life's mission. Right. He's going to encounter the one that he's actually persecuting. It says, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, verse 3, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. Light changes everything, church. Light changes everything. And, and here's what he says. He fell, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He, he has this, as the light shines around him, he's knocked on the ground and he hears a voice from heaven. It's the voice of Jesus. And he doesn't know it yet. He's about to find out who this is. But this moment takes, takes a, a, a course correction for Saul. It changes the trajectory of his life. And it doesn't matter. Let me just remind you, church. Let me remind every person in here that it doesn't matter how far gone somebody is. It doesn't matter how, how religiously zealous in the wrong direction or how much, they're, how, how much they've dived, dove headlong into sin. Jesus can change anybody. He can change the most hardened sinner. He can change the most religious person. And sometimes it takes just as big a miracle to change a religious person it does a sinner. <laughs> I mean, at least a sinner knows they need God. They need help. A religious person's convinced they're right when they're not. And here's what happens. He's on a course to persecute the church. And yet, this man who's anybody else would have said he's too far gone. Anybody could have looked at Saul of Tarsus and evaluated his future based on his present condition. Let's never do that. Let's never judge what God can do in some, their one encounter with Jesus. Here's what we should do. We should pray that they encounter Jesus. My favorite thing to hear is when people say, I never thought that person. Oh, I never thought that person. <laughs> the most difficult, the most bound, even the most hostile. We look at the world around us and go, man, everything's just getting crazy. Well, it's the greatest opportunity in our lifetime. Don't miss this. It's the greatest opportunity. The darker things get, the greater the opportunity to turn the light on. Saul, Saul would be considered by us today as a religious terrorist. He would. He was all in for his cause. In a different setting, he might be called an activist. But whatever it is, he's all in. 
The problem is he's all in on the wrong thing. But he's about to encounter Jesus. One encounter with Jesus takes us from being lost to found, broken to whole, bound to free. Here's what he says in verse five. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? He says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. There's two questions he asks. This is from the New King James' part. Uh, There's two questions he asks. The first one is, who are you? Who are you, Lord? Like, that's the most, remember what I told you last week. The two most important things in life are what you believe about God, and then as a result of that, what you believe about yourself. And what you believe about God matters. And Paul, or Saul, excuse me, has to recognize in this moment who he's talking to, who he's persecuting, who he's fighting against. Because he doesn't realize it, but every person in the church he touched meant that he was actually working against Jesus. I think this is where Paul later in life would recognize that the body is made up of many people, many members. And that that. Every part has value. Every person has value. Every person contributes something. We're, we're, tonight at Next Steps, we're going to talk about how God's given you gifts and a calling and how your gifts can make a difference because you're a part of a body. Jesus is the head. And, and we're a part of the body. And as a part of the body, what happens to one? We grieve with those who grieve. We rejoice with those who rejoice because what happens to one part of the body affects the whole. I think Paul got that when he was still Saul, when he talked to Jesus on the road to Damascus, and this is what he heard. Why are you persecuting me? Do you know Jesus takes it personal when the enemy messes with his kids? When, when, when you mess with my kids, I'm gonna fight. And God's no different. And I love what happens for Saul. He encounters Jesus. He asks that question, who are you? I think that's a, that's a question God loves to answer. Tell me who you are. Show me who you are. Jesus, make yourself known to me. Who are you? The second question is where we're focusing today because we find out who God is as we looked at last week from the truth of God's word. But, but the next thing that Saul asks is also important and I think it's the natural next question. What do you want me to do? If Jesus is who he says he is, if this is in fact true, and I believe it is, then what does he want me to do? If I'm not just a random accident of nature, but I'm created on purpose, and so are you, then let me ask you, what does God have for your life? Mark Twain said this, that the two most important days of your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. Do you know why you are on planet Earth? There's a reason, there's a purpose. You're not here by accident, you're here for God's determined purpose that he sent you into this world. I love what the Bible says in Ephesians 2.10. After describing the redemption we have through the grace of, of God found in Christ, it says we are God's masterpiece. Some translations say it was workmanship, it's a Greek word poema, it's, it's like, God, you're, you're God's poem. You're his work of art. You're his masterpiece. Like, of all the things that God created, the pinnacle of his creation is what's made in his image. 
Like, have you, have, you ever, have you ever had somebody come up to you and show you pictures on their phone? And, and they're like, look at what my kid did. They're like, that's great. Don't care. Anyway, you wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say that because you're nice. You're, you don't... You're like, oh, that's so interesting. Look at little Johnny and what, what little Johnny. And, but, but why are they showing you? Because they're showing you what they prize. It may not mean much to you because you don't have the relationship they have. Do you know what? I, I, just, I know this isn't theologically correct, but I just think God has an iPhone with your picture on it. And it's not an Android. It's definitely an iPhone. Do you know what the Bible says in Ephesians 2 later on? It says that for all eternity, you're going to be a display of the trophy. In other words, the, the riches of his grace, all creation is going to marvel at the riches of his grace shown to you and I in Christ. Why? Because we are his workmanship. You're created in the image of God. You're formed. And here's what it says. And he created us anew. Not only did he make you in his image, but he rescued you through Jesus. And the cross was about purchasing you and I back to God and redeeming us, saving us from our sin, saving us for God so that we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. So God has already planned something for you and I to walk in in our life. He's already planned for a God-breathed, God-dreamed purpose for every single person who's in this room and every single person who's alive on planet Earth. And part of our mission as a church is, of course, see people who are far from God come to Christ. But once they've come to Christ, help them discover the purpose for which they're created. Because I think most people live their entire lives without knowing why they're here, what they're created for. And frankly, we may have many Christians who don't know why they're here. Well, I'm just here because I've got fire insurance and I'm waiting in the waiting room of heaven. <laughs> We discover our purpose, like Saul, by encountering Jesus. I know you've got challenges and problems, and I don't want to ever minimize that. We all have problems. But, you know, I think the solution to our problems is not just getting rid of our problems, because there's always going to be more. It's actually finding something worth living for that's bigger than your problems. And there's so many people that don't walk in their purpose because they're preoccupied with the problem, the pain, the difficulty, what didn't go right, what somebody said, what somebody did. And, and we're so caught up in that instead of recognizing that just like Saul has an encounter with Jesus, we can have an encounter with Jesus that transforms our life and sets us on a course that we were always created for, that God always designed and desired for us to walk in. You are his workmanship. Saul, who would become Paul, would say this in Galatians 1, verses 15 and 16. It pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and he called me through his grace to reveal. Here's Saul and later Paul's purpose. He would have a name change. That's why I keep saying that. Uh, he, he would recognize that his, here's his purpose. The first aspect of his purpose isn't even just something he would do for God, but something he would become because of God. Here's what... God called him for, and he set him apart. You're set apart for God to reveal his son in me. What's your, what's your calling as a, as a father and a mother? To let Jesus reveal himself to your kids through you. What's your calling in marriage? To let Jesus reveal himself through you to your spouse. What's your calling in your job? To reveal Jesus in your job. 
What's your calling in your business? Is it just to make money? God wants you to be blessed, be successful, all of that. But the purpose is to reveal Jesus. I love, we've got business people in this church who reach more people for Christ than we do as a church sometimes. I love it. It's my favorite. I love to see people's lives impacted because of what, what you and I are called to carry and become. And he says that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So, so before he did something, before he preached Jesus, he allowed, he was, uh, the, the nature of Jesus had to be revealed in him. What if the world's heard our sermons but hasn't seen Jesus? What if they've heard messages and they've seen the billboards and they've seen all the stuff we've done, but they haven't seen Jesus? I don't want to preach my whole life and not reveal Jesus. That's the mission of the church. Just like with Saul, and it was to reveal Jesus. 1 John 2.6 says, He who abides in Jesus, in him, ought to himself walk just as he walked. So we're called to walk like Jesus. We're called to walk out the truth of what we've been given, and we're to do something. Jesus described, there's, there's two statements in the Bible in regards to being a light in the dark that Jesus specifically said. In one place, he describes himself as the light of the world. So Jesus is light. He steps into a world steeped in the darkness of sin, and he comes to bring light in the midst of that. But then in, 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 uh, in Matthew's gospel, he gives the Sermon on the Mount, and he goes through the, what's known as the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be filled. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for you. you know, and he goes through all these different things. But here's what he, he goes to after all of the Beatitudes. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Because Jesus called us to reflect his light to the world around us. I know advertising works. Here's how I know it works. Give me a break. Give me a break. Break me off a piece of that. Oh, come on. I know somebody in the house can relate to what I relate to. Okay. Uh, this, has, this is not my favorite, but this stuck in my head. This popped out because you'll know why. Uh, maybe she's born with it. Oh, you watch way too much TV. Okay. <laughs> A few years ago, I, 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 well, I don't know if it's still, uh, this commercial is still around, but I remember the tagline growing up for the Motel 6. We'll leave the light on for you. You see, you know it. Okay, advertising works. I told you. We'll leave the light on for you. When Jesus said, you're the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth, he was letting us know what our purpose was. Salt does a few things. Salt preserves. And if we're going to see a generation preserved for the things of God, the church has to be present in the midst of the world that needs Jesus. Present to bring light, bring the hope of God, bring the truth of Jesus, bring the, all, all of that. We, we, we have to, we have a responsibility and it's too easy for us to wait for somebody else. Well, somebody, God send revival, somebody else will do it. So can I just tell you, nobody else is coming. I know there's other people, and I know God's going to use other people, but, but, but what, what if God placed you and your family for such a time as this? And I know sometimes they act a little crazy. But what if your prayers could shape the history of future generations? 
What if God had placed you to be salt right in the midst? You know what salt also does? It, it, it brings out the flavors of whatever it's in. Do you know what I love about that is as the church, when we really discover what we're born for and then we carry Jesus to the world around us, not religion, because religion is bland. But Jesus brings life. What if the church was life-giving? I've been this week writing down and, and praying about what does it mean to be life-giving? Because we've said that since the beginning of our church. We want to be a life-giving church. What does that mean? It means that when, we, when people are without hope, we bring hope. And, and, and when, when people encounter what you and I carry, it's meant to make them come alive, what they were already created for. I know there's people that you're going to be around every single day that may not agree with a lot of things that you believe and stand on. And, but you know what I found is that as we begin to be salt and light first, do you know, hope transcends every culture. People all the time, they're looking for peace. They're looking for fulfillment. They're looking for joy. They're looking for love in all the wrong places, as the country song says. <laughs> Got three points for you today. Number one is leave the light on. Can I just remind you, church, that we need to leave the light on for the next generation. We need to leave the light on for our families. We need to leave the light on until everyone has seen and everyone has heard. People start talking about you. You know what you do? Talk back. No, I'm kidding. Don't do it. You leave light on. People criticize you. Leave the light on. They hurt you. Leave the light on. What does that mean? Forgive them. Bless them. When everybody else is afraid, you have faith. Leave the light on. What if the greatest witness to a fearful world is a fearless church? We need to bring salt and light. What I love about salt is it also makes thirsty. <laughs> there should be something about my relationship with Jesus that makes somebody else not only curious, but go, I want that. Like that, like that that's what I need. There's something about our lives. And, 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 and Jesus said this about, I didn't read it, did I? Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the, the light of the world. Excuse me. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. It cannot be hidden. Why are we trying to hide what Jesus has given us? What are people going to say? Maybe I'll get canceled. Saul was canceling people before it was cool. But the light shone around him and it changed him. As the voice of Jesus spoke to Saul, gave him a course correction. It says, nor do they, verse 15, nor do they put on a lamp, or excuse me, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, so it can give light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So let's leave the light on. Number two is we need to make ourselves available to God. Let's go back to the story of Saul and see what happens next after he encounters Jesus. We need to make ourselves available to God. Verse seven says, the men with Saul stood speechless for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. So Saul picked himself off the ground and when he opened his eyes, he was blind. 
His companions led him by the hand to Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. Ananias' name means favored. He's blessed. He has a relationship with Jesus. And the Lord spoke to him in a vision, said, Ananias, and he said, yes, Lord. I wonder if before this conversation that I'm about to read to you, Ananias was going about his day thinking, I wonder if I have a purpose. I wonder if I'm here for a reason. I wonder if being favored means I have an assignment that I need favor for. I wonder if I'm here on purpose, for a purpose. Could God ever use my gifts? Could God ever use my life? I wonder if Ananias asked those questions. Well, here's the conversation, because I don't think God needs perfect people, qualified people, but he does need available people. And he shows up to Ananias and he says, yes, Lord, I'm here. (laughs) I'm available. The Lord said, go to... Go over to Straight Street, that's a tongue twister, Straight Street to the house of Judas. And when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. And I've shown him in a vision a man named Ananias coming in. (laughs) You know, at this point, it's already a done deal for Ananias. Like, how do you not show up when Saul's already seen you? What does that mean? It means that God already prepares those that he sends you to. He's already gone ahead of you and done the hard part. Ananias, uh, he's already seen him coming in, laying his hands on him so he can see. Um, and here's, here's Ananias' response. But Lord, I've heard of this guy. Are you sure you got the right Saul? Tarsus Saul? Like the, the, the guy who kills Christians, puts them in prison, shuts down the church, persecutes the way. That Saul? (laughs) Lord, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem, as if God doesn't know how difficult this is going to be. And he's authorized by the leading priest to arrest anyone or everyone who calls on your name. The Lord says, go. Can Can I just help somebody who's maybe been like me in some seasons where I've wrestled with what I'm supposed to do? The day Jesus became Lord, I stopped voting for my purpose. So so it wasn't like a negotiation. You ever try to negotiate with God? God, I'll do that if you do this. Or we we usually don't do that. Well, if I do this first, (laughs) but it's not a negotiation. If you want to live on purpose, it, it requires, in fact, another word for availability could be surrender. Surrender. Whatever you want to do, Jesus. I don't understand it. I don't have it figured out, but I'm going to do what you said to do. The Lord says to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine. You're looking at Saul through the wrong eyes. You're looking at Saul through his past and even his present, but I look at him and what I've called him and created him to do. He's my instrument. 
Jesus already knew that Saul would become Paul. He'd write two-thirds of the New Testament. He planned more churches than anybody in history up to that point. He would make the biggest footprint for Christianity in the world. And to be frank, we're, we're, we have faith in our lives probably because of what Paul would do. But before there was a Paul, there was an Ananias. There was somebody who most people don't know about. I'm sure in maybe some places he's called Saint Ananias, like there's a Saint Paul, but very few people know of Ananias. Ananias is a man who is just simply available. Could God use me? Be available. I don't have it all figured out. I don't know enough Bible verses to quote. I don't have a systematic theology degree. Just be available. But my family's a mess. Be available. My marriage needs some work. Be available. Okay. Third thing is be a fountain, not a drain. <laughs> Do you know there's a lot of famous fountains? Can we put these pictures up real quick? Um, I've got two. One, one is in Rome. Do we have those? Yeah, so it's a little scrunch, but uh, that's in Rome. The next one's in Paris. And uh, these are just two examples of beautiful fountains that people take pictures in front of, you know, throw their coins in, they get married in front of, they, or they, they propose in front of these fountains. Like, these are famous fountains. I couldn't find a famous drain. I tried. I, I couldn't find a famous drain. Because fountains are famous because they're beautiful, many of them. And fountains, by nature and definition, pour out. They overflow. Drains don't. Drains only suck in. Drains only take. Drains only empty. I'm not going to ask you, have you ever met a drain before? <laughs> but let's just make it personal. Because every day I've got a choice. Am I going to be a drain in somebody's life or a fountain? Am I going to bless somebody? Or am I looking at that relationship for what it can give to me? Am I being a drain or a fountain? One last story in Matthew, or excuse me, John 6. John 6. I actually started the year with this story from a word that God gave our church. It's a famous story. It's actually, to my knowledge, the only miracle of Jesus outside of the resurrection that's repeated in all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. John's account's a little different. It tells us in Matthew's account, for example, it opens up and it says something that I think is important. It says that Jesus was healing the sick. He was teaching the multitudes and and while he was there, uh, John 6, if we can put it on the screen. There, while he's teaching them, it says he was moved with compassion for them. That's in Matthew's account. He was moved with compassion and it starts a moment that would turn into one of the most celebrated miracles of Jesus where he would feed the 5,000. And it's called the 5,000 because in the passage, it says that Jesus fed 5,000 men. And there was also women and children. They would, to be able in that day to count the families, the number of families present, they would count the men. And so they counted 5,000. So some scholars believe there was, if every family averaged about four kids with the, the wife, that the average would be somewhere between 20 and 30,000 people. So basically the population of Mason City. 
in one moment. It's actually the largest crowd that Jesus in one place in person preached to and healed. And he was moved with compassion when he saw their brokenness, when he saw their hurt, when he saw they were hungry, when he saw they were forgotten. Jesus looked and let us be a church and a people today in this generation that we look at the hurting, we look at the lost, we look at the the bound, and we look with the same eyes of compassion. We look like Ananias and see Saul who needs to be a Paul. Do you know what Ananias did when he responded? I didn't read that part of the story. He went and he prayed for Saul just like Saul saw and scales fell from his eyes. In other words, the mission of Ananias was to open the eyes of another man. And what if we lived with those, that level of compassion that we saw people, that we saw those that God cares about, that he loves, that he's passionately in pursuit of, that, of, of those people. That's been my prayer the last few weeks. I've been asking God, help me to see Says a huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. And Jesus climbed a hill. He sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. And Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. He turns to Philip and he asks him a question. Where can we buy bread to feed all of these people? And he was testing Philip for he already knew what he was going to do. Can I just tell you, God already knows what he wants to do with your life. God already knows what he wants to do with your family. God already knows. It's a setup. Like he's got Philip. He goes, what am I going to how do we feed all these people? And Philip's thinking, I don't know, Jesus. There's 5,000 men. There's many. They've all got a bunch of kids. How are we going to do this? There aren't enough Lunchables at Hy-Vee to feed all of these people. But Jesus already knew what he was going to do. God's not surprised by what's happening in the world today. He already knows what he's going to do. He's not shocked by what you've walked through. He already knows what he's going to do. He already knows how he's going to heal, how he's going to free, how he's going to provide, how he's going to make a way. (laughs) Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we would not have enough money to feed all of them. And Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, I think trying to convince Jesus, if you read all the Gospels, account of this, I think trying to convince Jesus that this whole idea of feeding all these people is a little extreme, a little impossible. Can I just tell you that whatever your purpose is, it's going to be impossible on your own. If you could do it without God, you would get the glory. Some of us are trying to only go after and accomplish what we can do ourselves. But what if we believe God to do what was absolutely impossible for us, but was definitely possible for God, and he would get all the glory? Um, there's a, a boy here, a young boy. His mama packed him lunch, and he's got five rolls, and he's just got a couple fish sticks. That's my version. He's got five loaves, two fish, and he's just got his lunch. That's all he's got. It's not enough, Jesus. Like, that's all we've got. This boy's got lunch. And, and at this point, if I'm just putting myself in the shoes of this boy, I'm clutching that right now. Because everybody looks hungry. And mama packed my lunch. And watch what happens. What good 
Here's what he says. What good is that to this huge crowd? There's probably been a time in your life, maybe you feel like that right now, where you think, what good is what I have? What, what, what good is what I've got in my life? Like, what could God do with this? What, what could God do with my gifts? They're not like somebody else's gifts. I, mean, I, I could go, well, I can't sing like Jason. I mean, sometimes I think I can. Nobody else agrees. That's why they turned my mic off when I'm singing. Um, but what good is it? Like, do you ever think that? Like, what, is what I have not enough? Have you ever felt like it's not enough for your family? It's not enough for your marriage to be what it's supposed to be. It's not enough. I don't have what it takes. And any time I thought I did, I found out after some passing of time and some reality of life that maybe on my own it wasn't enough. What good is that with this huge need, with this monumental task? What good is this little? What good is my story? Jesus says, tell everyone to sit down. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. Jason, if you want to get ready. Uh, and, and the men alone numbered 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God. He gave thanks to God for what? The little. That was about to be, spoiler alert, about to be much. It's, it's, it's called the feeding of the 5,000 for a reason. What if we thank God for what was in our life right now? I know we want that job instead of this job. I know we want that place instead of this place in life. I know we, 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 we do that all the time because what we think is, what we have isn't good enough. But what if we started to thank God for what we already had, what he's already given? Maybe, just maybe, we would realize that what we've already been given is more than enough with God. He blessed it. He broke it. And then he placed it in the hands of the disciples. I know how I used to read this story and think of this story is that Jesus set those on like a table and they just like waved his hands. And all of a sudden, pop, 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 pop. All the fish appeared. Pop, pop, pop. All the bread appeared. And it multiplied. And then he just took from that pile and he gave it out. But that's not the way the story works. He blessed it, the little the boy's lunch, and he broke it. And what God blesses and what God breaks multiplies. Oh, if, if we'd only realize that the brokenness of surrender is not a bad thing, it's a necessary thing. The place of God saying, lay this down. Trust me, surrender, go, believe. And, and he blesses and then he breaks. And we go, God, I don't like the breaking. I like the blessing, but the breaking, I'm not so down with that. He breaks our expectations because his are so much better. He breaks my plans because his plans are so much better. And then he gives it to the disciples and they begin to distribute. And in the distribution of the hands of the disciples, what Jesus blessed and broke now feeds an entire multitude of people. What if what Jesus wanted to do, I, I love that this story deals with a crowd of people 
not that different from the size of Mason City. And what if what's needed to see North Iowa impacted for Jesus, what's needed to see addictions broken, families restored, people who are far from God be saved, what if what's needed is already in our hands? What good is this? Is what we think. What good's my story? What if your story can encourage a multitude, can feed a multitude? What if your story of what Jesus did in your life, how he rescued, how he forgave, how he put back together what no one thought could be put back together, what if your story was more than enough in the hands of Jesus? Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, distributed to the people. And afterward, he did the same with the fish and they all ate as much as they wanted. And after everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, gather the leftovers. Here's what I wanna finish with. So that nothing is wasted. We, we serve a God who wastes nothing. He wastes nothing he's put in your hands. He wastes nothing he's put in your life. Your purpose is an encounter with Jesus away from changing your life and everyone around you. Are you available to God? Do you know what that boy had to do? He had to make available what was in his hands to Jesus. The disciples had to trust. And everybody involved got to see Jesus do what was impossible. Don't ever undervalue what you have because nothing is wasted with Jesus. Nothing is wasted with God. No pain is wasted. What I'm, what's amazing about God is he can take what the enemy meant for evil. What the enemy thought would take you out, steal, kill, and destroy from your life. And he can so turn it around, so redeem that situation that it can feed, it can heal, it can transform. Nothing is wasted. Do you hear me, church? Nothing is wasted in your life. Nothing is wasted with Jesus. I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet. We live on purpose. Today, we present our lives, ourselves, what God's already given us, and we present it to Jesus. Can I just ask you in here right now, are you, do you know why you are born? Like, do you, do you really know? I, know? I know so many people live their lives thinking like, my whole purpose in existence is just to go through the checklist, finish school, get a job, hopefully make enough money to retire, and then finish my time out on planet Earth. We have the checklist. Maybe it's one day to get married and then have kids and, and then have grandkids. And all of that's important and it's necessary and it's good. But what if all of that was connected to a purpose? What if you weren't just in your job for a paycheck, but on purpose? What if you were in your family, not just for relationship, but for purpose? 
What if you just live here to have an address? or because your family lived here, or because it's where your job moved you, but because God placed you on purpose, nothing is wasted with Jesus. We need to see what Jesus sees. We need to see the multitude that's hurting and be moved with compassion. We need to leave the light on. I know it's getting dark. I know it's dark. But if we don't, as the church, turn the light on, who will? No one else is coming. We can look outside of the church, outside of the kingdom for solutions. If we are, we're looking in the wrong place. God has an answer. He already knows what he's gonna do in your life and family. He already knows what he's gonna do in our community, in our nation, in the world. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and we're gonna pray. We're gonna pray for two things. I'm gonna ask our prayer team to come to the front. With every head bowed, and I'm asking that you would have your eyes closed as well to make what's coming next personal. I'm gonna pray for two things. First, if you're in here and you say, Brian, I don't know God like you're talking about. The first thing that Saul asked is, who are you, Lord? Saul spent his whole life learning religion. He spent his whole life learning about God, and he didn't know who it was who spoke with him on the road. Maybe you've been in religion, but you haven't met Jesus. You, you learned the program, you, you went through the motions, you, you did the class, you memorized the stuff, but you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you've never been to church, you've never been in religion, but, but you've been far from God, and and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. The answer to that question for Saul is the same answer for us in our life. How to have a relationship with God, it's through Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus came from heaven to earth to take our sin, my sin and yours, to die on the cross, not to start a religion, but to save you and save me from our sins that had separated us from God to rescue us to give us a home in heaven for eternity and a purpose on planet earth we trust this message encourages you in faith and in your relationship with Jesus to learn more about River City Church find us on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co